0: Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey.
1: Coming up.
2: The first thing he said to me was, I'm not trying to open an old wound, but I need to talk to you about your sister. And I proceeded to say to him, you can't open something that was never closed.
1: For Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. You're listening to The Daily Crime. On a crisp fall morning... In September of 1974, 15-year-old Lori Nesson was found dead in Reynoldsburg, Ohio. —
2: She was brilliant. She was creative. She was a dancer. You know, she wanted to be a lawyer. She would have made a difference in this world. —
1: But it would be another 46 years before a homicide investigation began. —
0: Crime Tracker 10 has uncovered a new homicide investigation in Reynoldsburg. But this crime happened— —
1: 10TV, a local news station in Columbus, Ohio, Cover the developments in December of 2020, sharing Lori's story and asking if anyone had information that might lead to answers in this decades-old case.
0: If there is something from this case that you might remember, Reynoldsburg police encourage you to give them a call.
1: One of their viewers did. Angela Ann, reporter and anchor with 10TV in Columbus, Ohio. This is just an incredible story that you've been covering and that your coverage has actually had an impact on, and we'll get to all of that. But to start, take us back to 1974. Tell me about Lori Nesson, this teenage girl who lives in Reynoldsburg, Ohio.
2: Sure. So Lori Nesson was a 15-year-old girl. She was well-known in the community, very uh, popular, um, very involved uh, with a lot of extracurricular activities, wanted to be a dancer. And, um, you know, she was just your all-around American girl. And one night she went to a local high school football game and went to a couple of parties and then walked home. She never made it home.
1: What else can you tell me about that night? I know it's it's September of 1974. It's a fall Friday night. As you mentioned, she was just at a high school football game. That's kind of the thing to do on a fall Friday night when you're in high school. Do we know where she went after the game? when she was last seen, any of those details?
2: Yeah, so basically after the game, um, she and some friends went to a couple of football parties, um, you know, hosted at various homes, um, high school, teenage homes, what have you. So a lot of the witnesses told investigators that they remembered seeing Lori, that she was there hanging out with friends. But the last time anybody saw her was leaving one of those parties, and her saying, I'm heading home. What they didn't figure out until later, but at the time, the witnesses had said that she allegedly had been drinking, possible drugs, things like that. However, once the toxicology report was found decades later, none of that was discovered in her body. The toxicology was clean.
1: So it's September 27th, 1974, that... Lori goes to this football game and eventually ends up going missing. What then happens on September 28th?
2: So the next day on September 28th, the investigators said a couple of people who were out picking apples came across her body that was in a ditch on the side of the road. Now, you have to remember back in 1974... None of these neighborhoods were built up. It was a very rural part of Reynoldsburg, really kind of the county area. And there were um, several different police jurisdictions involved with this. And when they found a body, Lori was in a ditch, naked, and her clothes were scattered across several miles from Reynoldsburg into a neighboring city of Gahanna. And so that was very strange, obviously, because that just doesn't happen to anyone, much less a 15-year-old girl.
1: Perhaps surprisingly for a lot of folks listening to this, in 1974, her death is not determined to be a homicide. The coroner's report lists her cause of death as undetermined. What else did that report have to say about her death? And do we have any idea why it wasn't initially ruled to be a homicide?
2: So that is the million-dollar question because any investigator will tell you today, based on what they saw back in 1974 in terms of cuts to her lips, potential signs of bruising, um, and just the sheer circumstances of a naked teenager found dead uh, would all lead to foul play of some sort. For whatever reason, at the time, the coroner's office ruled it uh, the cause of death as asphyxia of undetermined origin. And the family was told back then, well, the asphyxia was probably because she was in a ditch and there was water. So she must've suffocated, which the family never bought into that theory. Um, so the manner was undetermined. A lot of people feel like there were too many hands involved that perhaps they couldn't get a clear answer as to what happened. But again, This was 46 years ago. And, you know, you obviously didn't have the the science of what we have today with forensics. However, even so, again, um, investigators will say today that there were too many red flags to have been ignored, to have not labeled this as a homicide in 1974. So the case pretty much went cold until 2019 when a third shift patrol officer who happened to have a daughter who was the same age as Lori at the time just realized, you know, I I wonder whatever happened to this case. And for him, you know, he's heard rumors about the Lori Nesson case. People talk about it, but just thought, what if this was my daughter? And how would I feel as a family member not having these answers? So he took it upon himself to review the case and take a look at some of the evidence.
1: And speaking about what it's, like for a family to not have those answers. I know in recent years, you've spoken with Lori's sister, who's the last surviving immediate family member, Tony Hastings. What did she have to say about how Lori's death and how going without these answers for such a long time affected her family?
2: It was devastating for Tony When this happened in 1974, this didn't just happen to me and my mom. This totally changed everything for all of us. She said that this changed everything, not just for her or her family, but really for the community. Back then, again, 1974, parents would let their kids walk miles by themselves uh, without really any worry. Um, But because of the manner of how Lori was found, and even though it wasn't ruled a homicide, people there just stopped doing what they normally would do for quite some time. And even speaking with some people who remembered Lori's death back in 1974 that still live in the area, this has haunted them for the past four decades. They remember the case. They remember how they started using the buddy system. And they just remember how everyone felt there was something wrong about the case, but they didn't have the answers. For Tony, she said it was devastating. Um... Her mother never got over it, was always in, in, grieving over it. You know, Tony was only a couple of years younger than Lori at the time. And she just vaguely recalls seeing so many people in her home that next morning and being told that her sister was dead. And at the time, she just couldn't wrap her head around what that meant as a 13-year-old. And even today, there's, there is so much for Tony to consume and absorb and really understand now of how her sister died.
1: You mentioned the officer who ultimately decides to take another look at this case starting in 2019. His name is Officer Craig Bradford and it sounds like he started to notice some of those inconsistencies that you mentioned earlier, some of these injuries that may point to foul play. Why does he ultimately decide to take this case back to the Franklin County coroner and say, "Hey, I think this deserves Another look.
2: So, Officer Bradford started looking into the case. And, you know, th- for starters, again, I think he just had that beat cop instinct, knowing that things just didn't add up. You know, no 15 year old, again, ends up dead in a ditch naked and her death not to be ruled a homicide. So, as he started looking into the case, he realized that there actually were some documents missing. And to him, You know, there is a checklist when you have these types of investigations of things that should be in there but weren't. Photographs, toxicology reports. Um, And so he said he basically had to go on a hunt to find those documents.
1: And he's hunting down those records within his own department or at least within law enforcement?
2: Right. Um, But again, because they were investigated by different departments, you know, Columbus had their crime scene unit out there So they kept some of the records. Um, So again, there were many things that he wanted to find, one of which was the toxicology report. And he said, based on some interviews from the kids that were interviewed, the report should have supported their statement saying that, you know, Lori possibly ingested or drank something, what have you, but there was nothing, absolutely nothing, all the way down the line, no drugs, no alcohol, nothing in her system. Hmm. So that was one red flag. Then he talked about, the autopsy listing some cuts to her lips that to him would have indicated foul play, but he didn't have any of the photos, so he had to go hunt for those. And he said once he found those pieces of evidence, it was his aha moment. And the way he described it, you could see kind of the that was the game changer for him, where he realized we're onto something. And so he gathered up as much as he could And he decided to take it to the
0: coroner's office for a review. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey.
1: And then there was some pretty big news this past December, December of 2020. Then after the coroner's office takes a fresh look at all the evidence, what did they find this time around?
2: So he brought it to the coroner's office in early 2020. Of course, it took them some time to review it. They came back with a ruling in September of 2020 and they basically said after careful review of this case that they have determined that the cause and the manner of death for Lori Nesson has been changed and that her death certificate will now say the cause of death undetermined homicidal violence and that really turned the tide in this case because now even though it was a cold case, Reynoldsburg police, in essence, had an open homicide investigation on their hands.
1: You and 10TV then cover the updates in this case this past December. And as with most cold case stories, your coverage includes law enforcement and Lori's sister pleading with the public for someone to come forward. We hear this familiar refrain that somebody out there must know something that could lead to who did this. And it turns out, Someone watching your story in December did know something. What happened after that story aired?
2: This is pretty unbelievable. Normally, we do see these cases, we report on them, and then everything goes quiet. Police might get a few leads here and there, but they might be things that they've already investigated or something that they've already known about. Um, but, you know, they always say there's there's no tip too small. Well, this was a perfect example of that. Reynoldsburg police say a woman called right after seeing our story in December claiming Lori Ness's. A woman happened to be watching 10TV News and caught the tail end of our story and went online to see the whole thing. And she said to herself, this sounds awfully familiar to what happened to my cousin, Karen Adams. Hmm. And she called in to Reynoldsburg police that night with that same exact information. My cousin, Karen Adams who was 17 at the time, was murdered in 1975. Nearby, her body was found in a ditch and she was naked. And the investigators, of course, when our story aired that evening, they weren't in the office, but the message was relayed to them. So the very next day, Sergeant Jim Coslow spoke with this tipster and said, tell me more about what happened to your cousin, Karen. And Karen Adams was a cold case as well in our area from 1975. And it wasn't solved until 2011 through DNA. Hmm.
1: And so you mentioned that it was in 1975. That's just the year after Lori Nesson was killed. Six months. Six months after. And Karen Adams was also found in a ditch. There were so many similarities between these two cases that it sounds like not only did this caller say, I think there might be something here, but ultimately investigators say, hey, we think this other case might be connected to Lori Nesson's case. How did they go about figuring out if that was indeed the case?
2: Okay, so follow me along here because we're going to need a flowchart. All right. So once investigators got this lead, and truly it was a lead, the similarities, they say, just too much to ignore. Um... Before our story aired in December about the Lori Nesson cause of death being changed to homicide, by then investigators had already submitted some of Lori's clothing to BCI, our state crime lab here in Ohio, to be tested for DNA. Now, if you know anything about the CODIS system with DNA, it is this vast database of millions and millions of profiles out there. And it takes a while, right, even for computer technology for that stuff to come back with or without a hit, or even with a profile of some DNA of a person. While that was happening, Reynoldsburg police received this tip. And this tip said, this sounds like my cousin's case. Well, because they knew who killed Karen Adams, and that was a Franklin County Sheriff's Office case, Reynoldsburg police went to the county to say, can we talk? Let's just talk about this. I have this case in Reynoldsburg. This is what happened to her. And the detective who was on the Karen Adams case told me he knew right away. It was his guys. He said, no doubt about it. Oh. He said the time frame matched up, the MO matched up, everything matched up. And sure enough, within a few weeks, after that, once they knew the names of the perpetrators from the Karen Adams case, Reynoldsberg went to BCI and said, all right, from this vast pool of DNA profiles in CODIS, I want you to just see if they match these two guys involved in the Karen Adams case. And that made that match come back that much faster.
1: And you said guys, so there's there's more than one it's actually two men, Robert Meyer and, and Charles Weber, who'd been tied to the Karen Adams case. By the time all of this is happening, just in, in the last couple of years here, where are those two men? What's happened to them?
2: Well, unfortunately, both men are dead. So in 2011, when the DNA came back in the Karen Adams case, it was a, it was a match to Robert Meyer, and now you have to follow my flowchart again. The reason his DNA was in the CODA system is because when he was released from prison, I want to say back in the 90s, per Ohio law, you, you know, as a sexual predator, his DNA had to go into the prison system. Now Meyer and Weber were convicted back in 1976 for assaulting and kidnapping two women in the Toledo area. They were convicted, and they spent time in prison. When Meyer got out, his DNA went into the CODIS. When Weber got out, he got out before that became a law. So his DNA was never in the system. But fast forward now to 2011, when the Karen Adams case was reopened for Franklin County, and they had the DNA resubmitted and evaluated. So the DNA came back with two profiles. One of them matched Robert Meyer. The other one was somewhere in had a profile but they didn't have a name to that profile the detective in Franklin County figured out well these two guys were responsible for these rapes and kidnappings up in Toledo I wonder if that second guy Charles Weber is my second profile that I don't have a name to but Weber was dead so he had to go to the next best thing familial DNA so the detective found Weber's son, asked him for a cheek swab to see if he can compare it to the second profile. That came back as a match through familial DNA. And that's why they had two profiles tied to Karen Adams. Had they not done that, they would never have that second profile tied to Laurie Nessen. now, 10 years later.
1: And you mentioned that they have, in fact, tied those profiles to Laurie Nesson. I understand the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation has actually come out and said that these two men, Robert Meyer and Charles Weber, were responsible for Laurie Nesson's death. And it also sounds like investigators think there are probably some other cases out there that maybe these two men should also be looked at in connection with. What can you tell me about what they've had to say about that?
2: Well, basically, one of the investigators outright calls them serial killers and serial rapists they know now that Mm. Lori Nesson was likely the first confirmed victim of these two men. What is ever so frightening about how this all ties together is that when, when Meyer got out of prison first in the seventies, and again, these two met in prison back in the sixties, that's how they knew each other for other crimes. Meyer got out, moved into Whitehall Then his buddy Charles Weber got out and moved into Whitehall. I believe it was on September 16th of 1974. Twelve days later, Lori Nesson was killed. Um, Six months later, Karen Adams was killed. Karen Adams happened to live on the same street as Meyer and Weber back in Whitehall when they lived down there. Then the two disappeared. And then they were convicted in 1977 for the raping and kidnapping of two women, at least two women up in Toledo. Based on all of this evidence now, the investigators from Franklin County, from Reynoldsburg, and the Ohio Attorney General himself all believe that there are more victims out there.
1: So because nearly 50 years went by before Lori's case was solved, unfortunately, so many members of her family weren't around to to get that news, to get those answers that they'd wanted for such a long time. But what was the reaction of Lori's sister, Tony to hearing that her sister's case has finally been solved and so quickly after your story aired in December?
2: I think to this day, Tony Hastings is still in disbelief. And when they told me they got hits and that they knew who did it, um, for the like the next five minutes, I, I really don't remember anything. That her sister's case was solved so quickly but in the manner of which it was solved and the connections that it had to these two men and to another teenager who was killed. When talking about her mother she says she wishes her mom was here and she plans to Tony plans to come back to Ohio at some point and have some closure at the cemetery where her mother and sister are buried next to each other. She has a lot of emotional um, progress ahead of her. You know, she's she's angry. She can't fathom what her sister's last moments were, now knowing uh, what kind of perpetrators Robert Meyer and Charles Weber were. She, she has a lot of um, healing. But the one thing she continues to say that she hopes will come out of this discovery is that more families like hers will continue to have hope. She lost all but hope, right, of this ever being solved. The fact that it's been solved in this way, she feels it does take just that one tip, but it also takes that one person to be invested. And she credits that to Officer Craig Bradford. Now, Officer Bradford would tell you this was a team effort. So many people had different parts, the media, the BCI, Franklin County, but Tony credits Craig Bradford as her hero. Because without him wanting to look into this case, we may not be here today.
1: And I have to imagine that for anyone else out there who's waiting for answers in their own cases, in cases where their family members or loved ones uh, were were killed or or went missing and and they haven't gotten those answers, it really would give hope to see a case like this solved after such a long time. This is one of the longer cold cases in Ohio. What about as a reporter, what has it been like seeing this case solved after a tip from one of your viewers came in? I have to imagine that's an interesting feeling.
2: I have a lot of mixed emotions about this because as our duty and responsibility as journalists, um, this perhaps checks all the boxes Mm. in terms of educating, informing, but also making a difference. and. I feel like our story was able to make a difference for Lori's family, but also now, again, the hope for other families that you just never know what's out there. You just never know who might be walking by their TV set and happened to see the story that led to that tip. We've covered cold cases many, many times here at WBNS. And to have this kind of a turnaround this quickly, um is pretty unbelievable. You know, uh, I, I think at some point, I'll be able to kind of look back at everything and really see the impact that this has had. You know, Tony has told me and, and thanked me profusely, but I, I tell her, you know, I don't do this for the glory of, of, you know, putting my name anywhere. I do this for knowing the pain and seeing the pain these families have gone through for so many years without answers. And to be honest, even the investigators, you know, these investigators take these cases home with them in terms of their mind and and they think about it and they try to figure this out. And, um, you know, these aren't just case numbers to them. These are people and lives that were affected and changed because of these cold case murders.
1: Angela Ann, anchor and reporter with 10TV in Columbus, Ohio. Thank you so much for sharing the story with us. Thank you. And thank you for tuning into this episode of The Daily Crime. If you're new to the show, we put out five episodes a week, every day, Monday through Friday. So make sure you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you might be listening right now. That'll do it for today. Until next time, for Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond.